I knew you were going to immediately regret that. Uh, I wasn't thinking assassins. I was thinking <laughs> ass. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you are from San Diego, California. Cassidy Robinson, you are recording in an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. And not only are you from San Diego, you were celebrating San Diego Comic-Con uh, mm-hmm. just this last weekend. And uh, yeah, apparently... Everybody caught you in cosplay and decided to feature you in their their articles this year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this year, uh, me and my wife and our group of friends, we actually did three separate uh, cosplay sort of events this year. Everybody did some version of Barbie and or Ken. Um, Ashley was astronaut Barbie. I was astronaut Ken. Um, that got a lot of attention uh, we did that on preview night, which is uh, sort of the kickoff of, of Comic-Con. And nobody else was in cosplay, so I think that's uh, a big reason why we stood out. There was not a lot of cosplay on preview night. Uh, one day, a big group of us did Spider-Man villains. Um, that was a lot of fun. We got a lot of attention for that. And then on the final night of Comic-Con, they had this event called the Hellfire Gala. I, are you familiar with the what's going on in the X-Men comics at all? Uh no, I I saw that you that they were doing a a Hellfire thing that you went to, but I I didn't know that it was directly tied in with something that Marvel is doing right now. Yeah, so for the past few years in the X-Men comics, writer Jonathan Hickman took over and it took like sort of a radical change and uh, the X-Men, all of the mutants, all mutant kind has sort of united and made a utopia on Krakoa, the living mutant island. Oh, they're going and, all the way back. Oh, all the way back. Um, and this is like Chris Claremont's greatest hits. Man, it's a it's such a great uh, it's such a great story. I highly recommend checking out. Um, I believe it's called Powers of X and. I can't remember what the other it's powers of X and something else, um, something else of X and the new it like Twitter moniker. Yeah. It like it relaunched <laughs> X-Men in a big way. Oh, oh, I get what you're doing. Shut up. <laughs> um, anyway, so they have this event in the comic books called the Hellfire Gala where they sort of pick the mutant leaders and it's this big party and it's, it's the mutants version of a Met Gala. So everybody, okay. like, all the artists come up with these crazy, like high fashion looks. And so that was kind of the theme of this was a real life hellfire gala. And so we all did like sort of high fashion X-Men looks. And uh, that was also a lot of fun. It was a very interesting year at Comic-Con this year because the movie studios were not involved at all. Uh, actually, a lot of them had pulled out, uh, you know, a couple months ago when the writer's strike started. And right. then 
what what panels they did have, uh, most of them got canceled after the announcement of the uh, SAG after strikes mm-hmm. because all of a sudden there was you know no star power to promote these panels, so the actors can't come out and promote the movies and and uh, whatnot. So it was just kind of a different year for Comic Con. No huge Marvel announcements. Uh, there, I believe there was supposed to be like a Dune uh, preview panel. Uh, we did get to see a panel for the new Ninja Turtles movie. And instead of having all the celebrities come out and talk to us, they just showed us like a 20 minute clip. Um, so like a third of the movie, basically. And I'm very excited for it from the clip they showed us. I think it's going to be huge for reinventing the Ninja Turtles. Um, other than that, it was just, you know, there was a lot of comic book stuff, which was really cool. A lot of smaller panels, which normally wouldn't get any attention, got a lot more attention. Um, yeah. In, like the 6AB rooms were turning people away. And, um, yeah, it was a lot more like episode screenings in lieu of panels and and that kind of thing. Uh, and just a lot of cosplay. And we kept getting interviewed by all these publications, you know, asking us, oh, well, is Hollywood leaving Comic-Con like ruin the con for you and all? And the, the thing I'll say about that is it's bittersweet you know, I like to go to the big movie panels. I like to hear all the announcements and and see the trailers and that sort of thing. And I, I get a little annoyed at the people rolling their eyes like, oh, imagine a Comic-Con based on comics where Comic-Con has always been a pop culture con. It has always been about mm. more than just comics. Dude, I, they fucking... Not always. Not always, always. I mean, in the last... They fucking like, had a panel for Star Wars in the 70s, bro. Like, okay. it has always been about movies and stuff just weren't as genre-specific as they have been the last few years. So I, I, I get very annoyed at people acting like movies are not a part of Comic-Con. It's, they've always been there in some way. There's always been screenings and, and small, uh, you know, announcements and things like that. Um, so do I think that's a bummer? Yes, it is a bummer, but I absolutely support the SAG strikes and the writer sure. strike. And, you know, I, I think it was worth it. Like hold out. Get a fucking fair deal. The literally the fate of the industry depends on uh, the industry changing. How many publications did you end up getting featured in, either as photos or um, in uh, interviews? Uh, quite a few. We we uh, the San Diego Tribune. We were actually featured for both the Barbie and the Spider Man villains cosplay. Uh, the L.A. Times interviewed us. Uh, Screen Rant, and a whole bunch of other ones that I couldn't even keep track of. Gizmodo um, got some photos of our group. Uh, I I wasn't in those ones specifically because I went off to get food at that point. But um, like all day long, we were just seeing like press badges and getting stopped to take photos. So, uh, yeah, it was that. So that was the point I was getting to is it's bittersweet that the movies could not physically have a presence there. Um, 
but the rest of the con was still great. It was still a lot of fun. Um, you know, we had a great time cosplaying. The convention floor seemed no different. There was just as much stuff to do and, you know, swag given out. And there were offsite activations uh, and all of that stuff was really cool. So to me, it just proved that uh, the movie studios need con more than con needs the movie studios like Comic-Con will survive. To me, it's kind of silly to see all this uh, sort of, you know, hand wringing about the movies not being there. It was a great con, a lot of fun. And, you know, they focused on other stuff. Uh, there was a huge focus on video games this year, which was cool. And I, I would love to see uh, that them makes kind sense. Of push yeah. a little bit more going forward. So, uh, yeah, I think Comic-Con, you know, it survived the pandemic. I think it can survive uh, the strike. And if people want to see photos of you in your cosplay and some of the activations you went to, they can go to our Instagram, instagram.com slash MacGuffinPod. Uh, I was posting that through the weekend. You were sending me stuff. I haven't really posted a lot on mine, um, but I plan on doing like a big dump, uh, like a Comic-Con dump soon of just all the cool shit I saw. So Cool. We should talk about the biggest movie, one of the biggest movies of the year, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I I think it will be the biggest movie of the year. We said this uh, a, a couple weeks ago. Um, I said this movie's going to make a billion dollars. I was not being hyperbolic. I think it will be. Yeah. It will make a billion dollars. <laughs> um, and it's only been out for. Uh, a few weekends or so. What one? Yeah, and not yeah. It came out officially last weekend. And I'm burying the lead here, but of course we are talking about the Barbie film. Mm -hmm. Um, and this was this last weekend was the weekend of Barbenheimer, which was this marketing scheme that was thought up by somebody because Oppenheimer and uh, Barbie were both have, coming have out on the, the same weekend. Have you heard the backstory behind this? I don't know how true it is. Um, is there a backstory? But, I think they just both were playing, oh, like, oh, weekend opening chicken to see who was going to back out first, and neither of them did. So the, the story that I that is circulating online, and again, I, I don't know how much credence to give this, is uh, Barbie was – produced by Warner brothers mm. and Christopher Nolan left Warner brothers that he had, you know, that he had been longtime uh, collaborators with. So the story is that Barbie set their release date intentionally uh, on the same weekend as Oppenheimer to try and bury Oppenheimer, but unintentionally created this viral marketing campaign, which has made both movies probably more successful than they would have been individually. I think that's certainly the case for Oppenheimer. I'm not sold that that was the case for Barbie. I think Barbie was going to do really well regardless. I agree, but I, I don't think it hurts it at all. I think, uh, no, you know, I, I do think the double feature uh, meme crowd is there and probably people tried to squeeze it into one weekend when they maybe would have seen Oppenheimer first and then Barbie later. You know what I mean? 
I agree. Yeah. Um, I definitely agree. And I also think that, uh, you know, Hollywood should not learn the wrong lesson from this. Oh, my, they already have. They are, the CEO of Mattel's already been like, oh, hell yeah, we're making a Barney movie. We're making an Uno movie. We're making Polly Pocket directed by Lena Dunham. Like they they did not understand why people have connected with this movie in any way. They're just like, people like toys. <laughs> right, right. That's kind of what it seems like. But uh, it, it's also, I'm not necessarily just talking about that. I'm also talking about the idea of studios trying to create a viral scheme by pitting movies against each other. That is like rolling the dice and you're... They they are working on Morbius 2 right now. Morbin Boogaloo. uh, Right. Because, yeah, they do not understand... That this and they'll open was, like opposite Dune two or something. Yeah, they are. They like, do not understand that this was just sort of an organic, fun, one off like kind meme of meme come thing. to life. That that absolutely, you got the pink, you got the gray, the black and white. Like it, it, it made itself. It will not work with any other movies. <laughs> like it's just it's. It's just a weird thing that happened that's a lot of fun, and you cannot engineer that. I don't care how many fucking degrees you have in marketing. Well, <laughs> they're going to try, and they're going to make – unfortunately, some movies are going to unnecessarily flop because of them. Yeah, and it's it, – there's going to be some very unbearable marketing campaigns, too, for the next few years. Yeah, yeah. It is definitely not Morbin time, and it wasn't when they tried to do that. Um, but it is Barbin time, so let's talk about the movie of the hour. Uh, sure. Do you want to set it up, or do you want me to? I can set it up. So, okay. Barbie is the film directed by Greta Gerwig, and is uh, co-written by Gerwig and her partner slash longtime collaborator, uh, Noah Baumbach. And together, they brought to life the world of Barbie as we know it from every generation, from the first Barbie that was ever created in the, was it early 60s, late 50s, all the way up till the most current merchandising that's come out of Mattel. And this kind of takes place in sort of like an elf-like fish-out-of-water deal, where you have Barbie, played by Margot Robbie, she lives in Barbie land where everyone is Barbie happy and they sing songs and and they go to the beach and they pretend to eat lunch and dinner every night and have dance parties and girls nights. And everything is hunky-dory in Barbie land until one day she starts to have these existential dilemmas in her mind about death and aging and you know, the meaning of it all. And she also noticed some physical differences. Now she's developing cellulite and uh, her feet, instead of that perfect pointed angle that all Barbie feet are in so they can go into high heels, are now flat. And to get answers, she visits uh, Weird Barbie, as played (laughs) by Kate McKinnon from Saturday Night Live. And uh, she informs her that there is sort of 
break in the universe where her owner in the real world is uh, experiencing these sad feelings and transferring them to her. So she decides she's going to travel to the real world from Barbie land to figure out what's going on. On the B plot, we also have Ken as played by Ryan Gosling. And he, along with all the other Kens on the Barbie world, their sole purpose is to sort of bring positive energy and admiration to the to the other Barbies. And being the puppy dog doting clueless dork that he is, he decides he's going to stow away with Margot Robbie's Barbie to the real world and uh, try to impress her with his Ken-ness. Uh, once they go his through... energy, if you it, will. It, I will. Usually I don't, but this time I will. Eventually they end up in Southern California and Fish Out of Water comedy ensues. They make their way to the headquarters of Mattel and figure out the uh, kind of what's going on in regards to Barbie's owner and her sudden fears about death. And Ken also realizes that in the human world, the men of society have a lot more social currency than they do in Barbie land. So that kind of creates a rift. How many times am I going to bring up Back to the Future 2 this year? Because I, I'm like, oh, this is Biff World now. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, I, I don't uh, think it's as parallel as uh, no, some of the no, other ones there, we've brought up. But yeah. There's no time travel being had here, but there is kind of a... Well, that, there, there's it, this, it came to mind. Yeah, there's this element of, uh, you know, Barbie Land gets changed and... You know, Barbie has to sort of come back and put things right. Right. Um, And uh, yeah, you know, I I was kind of interested in this movie from the get-go, even before Greta Gerwig was involved, because it's gone through many iterations. At one point, uh, it was going to be Amy Schumer in the role. Yeah, and and she was working with Diablo Cody, actually. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And then there were some creative differences between her and the studio. They decided to go another direction. They brought up somehow ended up with Bombac and Gerwig, and you know, well, I, I know that Barbie uh, as a uh, like Mattel is very protective, protective. of the Barbie yeah. brand. Um, so I can see why you know maybe Amy Schumer wasn't the right the right fit. Uh, just, you know, Amy Schumer is very edgy and she's going to push things. And mm-hmm. I mean, I'm actually surprised there were some jokes that made it into this cut of the movie. Oh, um, I think it earns its PG-13. Yeah. You know, it's it's not entirely. I mean, this isn't a kiddie movie. It, it, it's mm-hmm. I think, you know, for eight. Plus, it's probably fine, and a lot of the adult humor will go over most kids' heads. But there's some, you know, there there's some spicy meatballs every once in a while in this movie. Um, they don't hold back on on some of the suggestive stuff, and, no, and certainly yeah. a lot of the thematic stuff is pretty sophisticated. 
Yeah. But, you know, I, I walked I, into this movie kind of excited about it because, for one, I really like Greta Gerwig. I've been a fan of her since the Mumblecore era of Greta Gerwig, like way back when she was in movies that were made by the Duplass brothers for $2. Um, mm-hmm. And I've really liked her work with Noah Baumbach, like Francis Ha. Uh, and I've also, I believe, Lady Bird was my favorite movie the year that it came out. Mm-hmm. So, big fan of Greta Gerwig. And it's been interesting watching her interviews with this and um, them talking to her about her cinematic influences because it's it's all over the map. I mean, the movie begins with a Kubrick reference to two thousand one <laughs> yeah. Space Odyssey, but the, you know, there's also references to like the Umbrellas of Chabrol and and uh, the movies uh, by the Archers, like uh, the Red Shoes and some of the Technicolor like uh, musical comedies from the uh, the fifties. You know, you can feel that sort of cine literate nature of the production value of this movie and. I also like that, you know, it would have been really easy for a less, I don't know, a less creative director to just sort of CGI everything. And I like that she really took the initiative to use real sets and practical as much as possible and yeah, to embrace a, the artifice in a yeah, weird there's way. there's a, a tactile quality to it that it, it, Barbie Land has this sort of plastic feel which right. I don't think you could have necessarily gotten if it was all digitally done or all green screen. I I, I think yeah. you know we we needed to see them interacting with the dream houses and the plastic beach and you know that kind of thing. Um, I, I right. agree. It added this layer of just texture that made it more believable that this is a you know this land of living dolls. Right. And, you know, Gerwig's background, even before film, was in in theater. I think she brings a lot of that to her set design and her 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 knowledge of sets like what you could. I I mean, she uses there will absolutely be a musical version of Barbie on Broadway within the next 15 years. Right. Like, oh, sure. That will happen. But you can see it with the dream house. I mean, this movie has like big musical like Busby Berkeley style musical numbers in it. Absolutely. You know, but she but I'm talking about like even like small details like, okay, so you want everything to appear pink, but you want to use certain shades of pink so that you Mm -hmm. can layer up with all of these flat backgrounds. Yeah. You know, and in a way, it kind of reminds me of what we were talking about with with Asteroid City and this sort of embrace of artifice. Sure. Totally. Yeah. Um, And the use of color and the use of props and and uh, not shying away from the unreality of things. So those are my opening statements. What were uh, what were your initial impressions of Barbie? Yeah, I watched it last night. So, so my, I mean, there's some stuff I'm still kind of settling on, but, uh, you know, my, my overall thought is this movie is big and, and campy, but in a good, in a good way and in an intentional way, it's brassy, it's bold. And I think, I think the thing that really sells this movie is our two leads, uh, Margot Robbie and 
Ryan Gosling brings so much heart and life to this movie uh, that it, it would be very easy for you know people to phone in a movie like this. And neither of them are. They are both like swinging for the fences. Well, Margot Robbie is very good at if you think about major featured career that she's mm-hmm. you know made since coming from Australia to here and making movies starting with like Wolf of Wall Street to this. I mean, she, obviously she looks apart. She's gorgeous, blonde. You know, she has a big eyes, big smile. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has those sort of features already, so that that works. But she also plays this kind of dopey optimism really well. I don't think it was an accident that uh, they cast Will Ferrell as the CEO of of Mattel, given the parallels between a movie like this and Elf. Oh, yeah. I I mean, also uh, the Lego movie, you know, like he's kind of reprising his role from that um, in a way. Yeah, I don't think that's an accident at all. Um, But and she does have the the perfect Barbie look. But it also like I like that the the movie itself is very funny, but it still challenges this idea of what Barbie is and what Barbie should be and what Barbie can represent and deals with that question in and of itself has been tackled almost every generation. You know, Barbie's had kind of a, had a, I mean, it's always been a very successful toy line regardless, but you know, there's always been discourse around, is she an aspirational feminist icon or is she a problematic uh, beauty icon? Yeah. And, and I love that the movie approaches that head on. Like the movie is having that argument out loud uh, throughout the entire runtime, you know, it, that they are able to have that conversation, but still give us a character arc. Mm-hmm. And that she is able to, as an actor, internalize that and. And, you know, we see that struggle in real time just on her face, uh, yep. let alone all of the other stuff. Um, and same thing with Ryan Gosling as Ken. Like, it would be very easy, I think, for, again, another actor to just sort of play a foil. But he he is making all of these bold choices and this big broad performance that just like fits perfectly in tone with the rest of the movie. Oh, I mean, for my money's worth, Ryan Gosling's the MVP of the movie because he he spent so much of his career trying to not be this. Yeah. You know, like he very rarely played like the good-looking boyfriend or like he kind of started out, you know, he started out from the the Mickey Mouse Club. Mm-hmm. And then he grew out of that quickly, and when and uh, he was in some sports movies and things like that, and then he quickly started making very serious dramas about very troubled people, mm-hmm. and it seemed like he was running the other direction from just being typecast as a pretty boy. In mm-hmm. this movie, it's almost like he was given the instruction: be exactly what you don't want people to think you are. 
like yeah, absolutely and be yeah. at a hundred percent and like be be the almost a, a mocking version of what you were originally afraid you were going to get pigeonholed as yes i mean absolutely and, and he also does it again with, with in this way that it never becomes it never becomes so uh, uh arch to the point where you lose touch with him as a character like he also still has this sort of internal struggle that he's playing granted a lot of the time is played for laughs but like you can still feel Ken's pain behind all of the stupid jokes, which aren't, they're not stupid. They're actually really clever jokes, but underneath that, you can still feel for this guy. You can still relate to that. And to me, that is a challenge. Yeah. I mean, I think he's just a great actor in that way. I think he's also hilarious. His line delivery is some of my favorite in the movie. (laughs) It's so refreshing to see him have this much fun on screen. Yeah, to just cut loose. And um, I also really like the supporting cast of uh, the other Kens as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we got Simu as uh, his sort of rival Ken, uh, King Kingsley Benadir, uh, Nikuti Gatwa, and uh, also uh, like we cannot forget a little shout out to. Uh, Michael Sarah as Alan, um, right? One of Michael Sarah's best roles in a minute. Correct. Yeah, I, I, I was, uh, I was pleasantly surprised by his, his feature in the movie. Um, those are the initial impressions, and I, I, I think it lives up to the hype, and mm-hmm. it's, it's also an effective comedy, and that's what, what I wanted from it the most is like, please just. Be funny and do well because there aren't big budget comedies anymore. Yeah. And, and, and that was the thing I was afraid of was, is the Barbie hype so much that this movie's going to do well, even if it's not funny, even if it's not good? That was my real fear is like, I just, like you said, I just wanted it to be funny. Right. I agree. And, and I think that it accomplishes that. With that said, I don't love this movie without reservations. I do think that the first two thirds are a blast. And mm-hmm. then the movie, it has to get to the meat. It has to get to the thematic stuff that it's been building up to. And I thought that the movie was doing really well with all of that. You know, the, the arguments about the, fe- you know, the feminist subtext of Barbie and, the uh, gender politics between her and Ken in the uh, Barbie land and all of the existential questions about what it means to be uh, an icon for different generations. And maybe a younger generation doesn't find that version of femininity as exciting anymore. Mm-hmm. And then I feel like the movie sort of loses its nerve a little bit being able to show without telling. And then by the last third of the movie, there's a lot of preaching and there's a lot of speechifying where characters are just outright saying what the movie's about. And in a very unsubtle and sometimes unfunny way. And then when we get to the 
the the climax of the movie, the big finale, I'm not going to say what it is, but it heads in some meta territory. Mm -hmm. Um, There was supposed to be this big emotional beat that I just didn't feel because I felt like the movie abandoned Barbie's personal journey halfway through the movie to go more into the thematic gesturing and then Um, tried to catch up with itself by the by the last like five minutes and say oh but remember you know remember when she was thinking about death well now we have to kind of come back to that and it's really you know and there's a lot that's been said about how people are taking this movie of course it's a culture war because everything fucking is and i'm not having that argument I, I I see the value of the things the movie's trying to say. I just wish sometimes it had said it a little more artfully and and had also kept the comedy in the forefront and let those let those themes tell themselves rather than the characters almost directly pointing at the camera and sermonizing. I I'm gonna. I'm going to do that thing where I agree with you a little bit, but also <laughs> not. Um, I, I do agree with you that there is is sort of this point where the movie does hit this this point that it is like sort of lays all its cards on the table and is like, here's what's fucking going on. And I I didn't necessarily have a problem with that. Um, I think I think it does that well enough and i don't think it ever really fully lost the comedy there's there's one moment in particular that i also didn't connect with as much um however you know i saw this movie with four different women who were sobbing at this point and and so like i think it still has that i i don't know i i think it has this earnestness um that it can connect with it's core demographic uh, uh, in a way. And I'm not saying that, you know, we didn't get it because we're dudes or whatever. I'm just saying that, like, you know. I'm also willing to put out there, like, specifically the emotional story arc. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically that and the way it pays off at the very, very end. I'm willing to say maybe we didn't get that because we're dudes. Yeah. Well, I like, I, I think I have a pretty good take on the movie as a whole, and I feel like I know what they're going for and what they did, and I think they did it pretty well overall. But it that was I that was the only element of the movie that I felt was a little underwritten. Um but, but I also I also think that it's cool to see a movie on this scale that, you know, was directed by a whim, woman starring women for women. Like I I Ooh. I think it's fully fair that there's so many movies that we can probably connect to on an emotional level differently than most women can. And, and so I, I still got that. I just was like, Oh, this moment isn't for me. I I can still feel it. I can still acknowledge it, but it's not for me. And I, I was fine with that. Like I actually kind of liked that. I, I actually like, the fact that everyone that I was with, uh, who was a woman, felt it so deeply, I was like, hell yeah. Like, that made me appreciate it even more. 
Right. It also helps to know the more you know about the history of the toy line and the more you know about the creator of Barbie, the original creator of the toy and things like that, um, mm-hmm. that's all going to play into it. I mean, I, I think the movie doesn't require that much supplemental material. But if you've watched like the Toys That Made Us episode, yeah, that's there's gonna some, do there's a lot some, of work. There's some stuff if you know, you know kind of stuff in there. Sure. Yeah. And and it's not deeply important, but it's um it it will mean it, that it much more to it. you. Yeah. Yeah. Um also uh the only other place in the movie where I felt like there was a tonal shift that kind of wasn't working mm-hmm. um is and it's funny because we talked about him in the positive, uh, but I didn't really understand the choice that Mattel and all of the um, the suits that work in there feels just as manufactured in plastic as yeah Barbie Land. Like as I I, 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 I felt like there was there. a kind of a missed opportunity to do fish out of water stick, but it was fish out of one tank of water into another tank of water. I do I do agree with you there and I I was actually going to bring that up. Like I, you know, I do think Will Ferrell and his crew of suits are funny and there is comedy there, but I I feel like it, it feels like we don't get that much of the real world. It feels like they come out of the real world and, you know, there's there's this fun scene on the beach and then there's some some fun stuff with uh, when Ryan Gosling is like researching the history of men and 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 stuff like that. But yeah, I do agree with you that I I thought the the tone of Mattel was a little weird, and I I think that maybe I would have liked to see that played a little straighter. Uh, uh, right, or, or for for lack of a better world uh, word, um, but a little more realistically. And you know, by the end, they can. You know, once they follow them to Barbie land, I think there's the opportunity for that transformation to make Mattel more plastic. Uh, but I, I do agree with you. I, I felt like when we were first introduced to Will Ferrell in that scene, it's a little it's a little jarring because it, it doesn't feel real. But we're supposed to be in the real world. Right. Yeah. It, it, it sort of neutralizes the comedy because there's or the potential for comedy because you you know there's nothing being subverted it's it's literally like i said it's fish out of the wa- out of one tank of water into another tank of water yeah um so i yeah. and i there might have been a, some attempt at like a a commentary on like the inauthenticity of corporate world or something like that well, but it I, doesn't I think you quite can, work i think you can Play that in a way that's different from from what we get in Barbie Land, right? Like, yeah. if it's going to be this sort of fake corporate world, give me give me a little more Brazil in that, right? And and I think we get that a little bit with like the cubicles being designed in this, you know, sort of uh, like looks like Metropolis fashion, uh, uh, but then it it's quickly sort of abandoned for you know, like Will Ferrell in a pink ties. And and I agree. I was a little, I, I felt like to me, that's the only thing that really sort of stuck out to me as, as what I would call a flaw. Yeah. I mean, it was, I, I, I kind of wish that the movie would have mined potential 
for, you know, those what the fuck moments during that stretch of the movie. But it ultimately kind of just comes back to Barbie land and like the fate of Barbie land anyway. Yeah, that's not pretty quick. The end all be all. But yeah, you know, largely speaking, I enjoyed the movie. I had a good time with it. People are going to have a good time with it, I think, you know, for the most part. Um, I, I, this was the most crowded I have seen my theater in forever. Like I could not, it was so hard for me to find like multiple seats together for a showing. Everyone in the lobby was wearing pink. Like it, it is fun to see something that we know is going to be a cultural touchstone. Like that's exciting to me. And, and to see that be so big and feminine and campy and and weird like there's some weird like very cinematic choices like the the some of the musical numbers and and things like that that are just so much fun uh right that, and the musical that, choices i i mean i i think I, I brought this up during um uh uh ladybird as well that gerwig has this like great ear for knowing exactly what song needs to be at this moment that that's not the usual go-to it's like she she knows how to play very for lack of a better word uncool music in a way that like really stands out there's there's one in particular that just literally just thinking about that scene is making me laugh right yeah i i know which one yeah um the stuff on the beach is a lot of fun i mean it's mm-hmm. It's a good time at the movies. I think it has some story problems, and I I do think it it gets a little bogged down with the messaging at a point. Not because I'm against the messaging, yeah, but yeah. because I think you could it could have come more from a comedic place than a finger pointy place. So for me, it's a B, but a pretty solid B. Oh, I'm giving this an A minus. Uh, I, I, like I said, like I agree with you. It's not perfect, um, but it solidly delivers on its promise and its premise, and it just has me so excited that it's doing so well. So, yeah, A, A, A minus for me. Yeah, I, I was hoping that it was going to be the unofficial third in the trilogy that is Clueless, the Brady Bunch movie. And then this, and it didn't quite become that, but it's pretty close. It might be the unofficial third in the Josie and the Pussycat Zoolander in this. I, I get what you're saying, but I, I it, it's funny because while I was watching this movie, I was like, part of part of me was like, this movie shouldn't be doing so well. This needs to be a cult classic. <laughs> like it, like this needs to be discovered by audiences in ten years. Um, but well, I here's, also, here's also for as well as it's doing, it was made for $150, $150 million, which is, you know, not as big as the biggest thing that comes out anymore, but still mm-hmm. a very expensive movie. It is more, more than made its money back, but yeah. even on the marketing, but you know, if this wasn't Barbie, I mean, if it was just called fantasy doll land or something or uh you know if it was a riff on barbie without the brand recognition mm -hmm. would it be it it, it's almost a cult classic that was led into the 
gala through the back door. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I think that's what excites me so much about it is it is it, it is so uh, sort of strange in that way. But, um, yeah, I think it's a blast. Um, I'm sure if you've probably seen it by now um, and you might have seen it multiple times by now, uh, enjoy the summer of Barbie. All right. Let's go ahead and get into the next segment. Before we talk about our streaming homework, I did devise a game that we could play. Okay. Uh, this is a little unlike some of the other quizzes I've I've presented with you before. The rules are a little different. You have might okay. have played something like it before. I'm going to give you two clues for two different movies. Okay. And they will combine to give you one title. So okay. as an example, it would go something like this. Clue number one, Disney's animated reimagining of Hamlet in Africa is... The Lion King. A giant ape falls for movie actress. Uh, so uh, King Kong. So the Lion King Kong? That's correct. Okay. Okay. So I have a few of these. And we'll, we'll see how you do. Okay. Number one, a Western whodunit mystery trapped in a snowy mountain haberdashery. Clue number two, Joe Pesci hitman comedy about missing luggage containing sensitive evidence. The hateful eight heads in a duffel bag. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Most of these are fairly easy, so... <laughs> Okay, number two, an alien visits Wisconsin widow in the form of her late husband. Cruel French king confronts imprisoned twin brother in swashbuckling revenge tale. What? Okay. If you need me to repeat one, just let me know. I'm stuck on the first clue. Um... An alien visits Wisconsin widow in the form of her late husband. Cruel French king confronts imprisoned twin brother in swashbuckling revenge tale. Okay, the second one is Man in the Iron Mask, right? I'm not going to say. Uh... <sighs> I, I don't know what the first one is. Um, oh, God. Um, oh, Star Man in the Iron Mask? You got it. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen Star Man, so uh, I had to... Oof, that oof. one was tricky. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is the third combination. Fictional 1960s Pennsylvania band becomes short-lived one-hit wonders. Clue number two. Racial divides come to a head on a hot summer streets nearby a Brooklyn pizza diner. That thing you do the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> Almost a palindrome. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> uh, number four. Every morning starts life over from the same point for this smarmy weatherman. 
Clue number two, a group of military survivors try emotional experiments on zombie prisoner. Groundhog Day of the Dead. (laughs) That's fairly straightforward. (laughs) So far, so good. I almost stumped you with the second one, but... Yeah, yeah. All right. What? Okay. All right. Uh, Let's try this. I'm going to see if I can get it from just the first clue. You won't. I would have gotten the last one. I would have gotten, I was already thinking, okay, Groundhog Day, what movie starts with day, day. I think I could have got the last one. So let's, let's just try it. And if I need the second clue, I'll ask for it. Okay. Okay. Young comic book reader becomes homemade superhero to take down local mafia. Okay. Uh, ooh, okay. The, um, the movie starts with A. <laughs> all right, all right. Give me the second clue. Powerful Templar gathers clues from the genetic memories of his ancestors. Ah, a kick Assassin's Creed. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to immediately regret that. Uh, I wasn't thinking assassins. I was thinking ass. Okay. A pregnant housewife becomes suspicious about her secretive neighbors and their unconventional prenatal advice. Oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. Um, Rosemary's baby's day out. Mute Speedster helps criminals escape heist operations. Damn it. Rosemary's baby driver. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, number seven. Elderly man reminds his wife with Alzheimer's about the story of their young love. (laughs) Okay. Um, The Notebook of Eli. Two teenage girls decide to party the night before graduation to make up for all the time they wasted getting good grades. Uh, the notebook smart. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, last one here. Loosely autobiographical movie musical about the success and romance of 80s pop icon. Oh. Okay, can I get that one one more time? Loosely autobiographical movie musical about the success and romance of 80s pop icon. Okay. Clue number two. Los Angeles yuppie becomes the guardian of his autistic older brother he never knew. Oh, Purple Rain Man. (laughs) (laughs) That is correct. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to have both clues, because if you don't get it from the first one, you get it from the second one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would have got, I'm telling you, I would have got Groundhog Day of the Dead. Yeah, I probably <laughs> could have made that a little harder, but I decided not to. I was also no, kind is, of writing is, these while I was at work. <laughs> this is good. I'm, uh, I feel like I'm ready for Doug Loves Movies. <laughs> it is a very Doug Loves Movies kind of game. Um, let's, uh, let's invite him on and play it with him. You're the comedian, so you gotta make it happen. (laughs) Fair enough. All right. 
Let's go ahead and move on to the streaming homework, uh, which I assigned you the last episode we did. And that is the uh, 1994 Hong Kong film by Wan Kar Wai, Chungking Express. Uh, and I'll let you set that up. It's kind of, this one's kind of interesting. So it's, it's sort of two stories in one movie. Uh, the first one is about this cop who is recently broken up with who encounters a, a mysterious woman who is doing some nefarious activity with uh, drug smuggling and how their lives cross paths for a brief, for brief potential romance that never sort of gets fully developed. And then we shift gears to another police officer who is going through a breakup, uh, who has a sort of unconventional romance uh, with this quirky waitress who ends up breaking into her house, into his house and uh, rearranging all of his furniture and um, just like changing weird little things in a way that helps him uh, emotionally move on from his uh, previous relationship. Right. So they're both stories about young, hopelessly romantic police officers. Uh, the first one is more sort of a detective, and it kind of plays out a little bit like a t detective noir that sort of morphs into something else. Mm -hmm. And the second story is also about a police officer and who also has sort of a happenstance romance. And they, it's kind of interesting how the, the, the two stories that it's bifurcated in this way, or like directly in the middle point of the movie, we go from one story to another. And they sort of mirror each other in interesting ways, but they mm -hmm. also tell their stories in different ways. Like the first, the first film, first short film, if you will, or first vignette, relies a lot more on on uh voiceover to to talk about this past relationship he was in the way he feels what he's expecting from these relationships you know he has this he has all of these uh ideas about uh things that expire whether it's food or you know romance or uh time that goes by or these uh missed opportunities and then the second story almost has none of that, almost has mm -hmm. no voiceover, and it's told all through the actions of the characters. Almost to the point where when we see the young waitress, and this is the only thing that ties the story together, is they both, everyone sort of meets up at this little bodega sandwich shop mm -hmm. in Hong Kong, and everyone sort of cross paths there. but. Almost to the point that when she starts breaking into his apartment and cleaning things and they just barely miss each other, I'm like, is he imagining all this? Is this, is this like some fantasy he's having? Oh, and interesting. Then, and then uh, the movie, I, I think, more or less confirms that they, that what we were seeing was, in fact, real. But it, uh, but yeah, it, it, 
relying way less on sort of directing the audience into the thoughts and actions of the characters. I I do think it was interesting that yeah, both of the the males in these relationships are these are so are similar uh in that, you know, they are these they're both these hopeless romantic um police officers and then both the the female uh leads are very different. Like one is like you said, the first one feels almost like noir. Like I, I felt like there was going to be more to do with the fact that he was a cop and cause she, she was, was a like, criminal. Yeah, because yeah. she was doing some pretty like crazy shit. Yeah. Um and so I thought that choice was interesting. And then I I had a kind of a hard time when the movie shifted gears because I didn't realize this movie was structured that way and so the fact that the main girl in the first story uh the main actress is wearing this wig and glasses and like this dark overcoat i was like is this the same woman and she's just like at this restaurant as like a cover or whatever so when it shifted gears to another story i was like "Uh oh like it kind of took me out for a little bit and then, you know, once I realized what was going on, I was able to to kind of get back into it. But um, I don't know. It's structurally, it was very interesting. Um, yeah, I uh, I was a little bit more prepared for that to happen because I had seen um, Quinn Tarantino. Had, he did a um, like way back when, way back in the 90s, he had did an introduction for the movie when it was released in America. And then they just took those introductions and put them on YouTube without the movie part. Mm-hmm. Um, so he talked a lot about like the actors and stuff and Wong Kar Wai's other films and blah, blah, blah. And he had mentioned that there was two stories in this movie and that there was another movie called Fallen Angels, I believe, which is a feature length film, but was originally intended to be the third story for oh. this film. But he felt like he had enough. Uh, Wong Kar Wai felt like he had enough of these two that he didn't need to do that one. So he just made that as a third separate feature. But it thematically, it like ties in a little. Interesting. Um, but yeah, so I was a little prepared for that. But, but, but knowing that, I was also like, oh, okay. So, I mean, you can clearly see the, the American influence on this film, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean- Hong Kong has always been very east meets west meets east again like that's like their their stuff traveled a lot more than other parts of china uh largely because you know hong kong is like this uh american styled city in the middle of china uh that is you know for the most part fairly capitalistic and things like that um and there's a ton of branding all over the movie. I really love the way that Wong Kar Wai uses signage, you know, like mm-hmm. big McDonald's, big Circle K, big, you know, oh, we see all these American icons, Garfield, things like that, like all throughout the movie. Well, and the and the, the music, too, you know. The music choices, yeah. There's, a um, you know, direct references to also like going to California and – living in California and 
Um, the in the first story, the the protagonist, when we're introduced to her, she's speaking English. Um, there's this, you know, uh, um, American looking guy working at the bar. Um, yeah, there's you you can it feels pretty Western uh, in as far as sensibility goes. Yeah, and I think it was really it was almost like him. Um, and I haven't seen a lot of his work, you know, generally speaking, but it almost felt like he was like throwing his hat in the ring of like what was happening in Europe and the United States with like the indie boom. Because mm-hmm. it fits really well in there, like in that sort of style of movies like Pulp Fiction, which would have been the same year, so maybe not that, but like movies like that and and the train spotting and, you know, um, the sort of slacker films from that era and things like that. That has that sort of looseness to narrative where it's not typically narrative, mm-hmm. but it is more of a mood piece involving characters and it has that sort of youthful ennui that a lot of those movies from that era were was was about um while also having a conscious you know the fact that they're cops and police and all of that um like a conscious connection to the history of hong kong crime movies mm-hmm. but not but without becoming one exactly yeah, yeah. I, I also think it's funny that, like, I, I had a harder time connecting with the second story at first. Um, but once I got into it, I actually found those characters to just be much more interesting and that story to be more interesting um, because because of that, the first story. Like, I, I never felt mm-hmm. even the first vignette sort of feels like two stories that are just happening simultaneously because the characters don't even really come together till the end and they don't have the same connection as the second story. So it does almost feel like three different stories in one. Um, I, and I think that's why I thought there was going to be a little bit more of a crossover or a tension um, within that first one with him being a cop and her being a criminal and I, I think as far as all of the stuff we're talking about, the second vignette is just more satisfying. and It feels more complete. It feels like it has a fuller arc. Yeah, and it, it just it feels more like a character study. Like uh, the, the waitress is very unique. Um, the cop is – he's a little more he's – he's a little less of a sad sack. Like – He's depressed, but he's, you know, also kind of likable and quirky in his own way. Whereas the the first guy I just kind of thought was annoying. Um, <laughs> I really like the actor who played the uh, the detective. I thought that he was really charismatic. But yeah, I don't think he... Well, just there, that character, there just wasn't as much going on with that character. He was just sort of like, oh, I'm sad, you know? Well, he seems much younger. Uh, yeah. and, I mean, I feel like they're probably close to the same age, but I, but uh, he's written to fit. I think almost more like kind of a college age, like he's twenty five. I think he says in the movie, but he feels, yeah, he, like he just turned twenty five. Yeah, he kind of feels more like an archetypically sort of young, lossless, listless 
person who's uh, putting all his eggs in one basket kind of thing and sort of living life a little bit more, you know, without any direction. Whereas the second guy feels like he probably maybe went through more because mm-hmm. we get a full, you know, scene of him and his ex-girlfriend, you know, the flight attendant. I, I think that um, was another reason why I was able to sort of relate to his character more like it, it, the the first guy kept talking about how he was sad that you know may wasn't calling him and then he goes to the little restaurant and there's a waitress there who's working and her name is also may so i'm i was con- you know i was like kind of confused there like oh that's a different that's not his ex because uh, right. he was clearly like not interested in her and, and so I just think that the the storytelling was cleaner in the second story. Like I liked that we got this backstory of his romance with the flight attendant, and to just see how how much it hurt him uh, without him just complaining about it the whole time. Right, and we get a, we get a lot of indications that he's depressed and that he like yeah, oh he yeah. Won't- he won't clean his apartment or he won't fix it because he wants it to stay the same. And he keeps the soap that he had, even though it's like, you know, shrinking every day. There's a lots of, just, there's lots of indicators about time and passage of time in this movie. But he, as a character, he's a lot more, I'm an adult with a job. You know, he's not in street clothes. He's wearing a uniform. Well, and and, and I he, just, I he presents he a lot more confidently outwardly when he's not in his apartment yeah so, his, his depression it just it, it his breakup his heartbreak is just seems a little more nuanced and mm. a little more real to me um you know because he he only sort of expresses that yeah when he's alone in his apartment talking about you know his torn dish rag crying and and stuff um and you know and when he's out he, you know, he won't even like take the letter and and things like that to to signify any kind of like hurt, right? Yeah, which at first I wasn't sure exactly what his his uh, initial feelings were about that letter and like keeping it or not keeping it. Like I thought it was, I almost thought he was like trying to like sort of underplay this person so that he had a better chance with the waitress. Oh really? Um, oh no! I I could tell pretty much right away that he just didn't want it to be real. That's what it felt like to me. Was he just, you know, as soon as he reads this letter, as soon as he acknowledges the real, th- then it becomes real. Then it, then she's actually gone. Then she's not hiding in his apartment. Uh, you know, she's just that's it. Yeah. Um. I. I mean, I think that that plays itself out. But yeah, I uh, I really enjoyed the movie a lot, and I think you know one of the things that Wong Kar Wai is really well known for um, in all of his movies is his cinematography and his use of color and his use of lighting. And there's a lot of handheld in this movie, especially that first half. The second half feels a little bit more like there's a lot more stationary set pieces, but the first mm-hmm. half there's a lot of kind of uh, uh, kinetic camera work and yeah, moving like, through spaces. Yeah, this like slow motion sort of shaky cam thing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and, and especially like really playing up sort of the cramped, small uh, locations in this movie, um, mm-hmm. and putting us right in there in the middle of it. But I, I think the movie has a ton of style, and I mean, if you don't walk away from this movie without uh, California Dreams playing <laughs> in your head or the uh, the uh, that cover of I think Dreams by the Cranberries. Yeah. Which fun fact was uh performed by the actress Fei Wong, who plays the waitress. She's apparently a like big pop star oh. in Hong Kong at that time. Oh, that's fun. And so that Chinese cover, which sounds just like yeah, uh, until the original, until you start like listening it, to the lyrics. Yeah, until you realize, oh, this isn't Chinese. Yeah, mm-hmm. I almost thought like maybe the cranberries like recorded a Chinese version because they thought it would do really well overseas or something. But um, yeah, it, I I really like the way that you know there's a few songs that keep playing over and over, and they they sort of become themes for the characters. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, on a whole, I just think it's a really cool, stylish, indie-flavored Hong Kong film. Yeah, I, uh, I I liked this much more than the Rules of Attraction. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know uh, what those yeah. have to do with each other exactly, but... <laughs> uh, just kind of similar time period, and, and sure. like you said, just that sort of youthful ennui. Uh, mm-hmm. No, yeah, I thought this was, uh, this was pretty cool. Um, like I said, there were some moments that would kind of throw me for a loop, but um, uh, the storytelling was able to reel me back in again. Ooh. So that is everything that we're talking about today. What movie did you want to assign for the streaming homework for next week? We are going to watch the uh, Paul Newman hockey comedy Slapshot, which is streaming on Netflix. Yes, which obviously one of the most popular sports movies of all times. Um, I can't say that I've entirely seen it. I, I know it's one of those things that was like a perennial on cable and things like that. So I'm sure I've, I've seen some of it. Um, but we'll see how much of it I recall as I'm watching. Sure. But if anybody has anything to say about any of the things we talked about in this podcast or previous, you can uh, get in touch with us through our email at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or X, whatever we're calling it now. No, it's Twitter. No, don't let X. <laughs> no. Stop trying to make X happen. It's not going to happen. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, under MacGuffin Pod. We're also on Letterboxd, where we update people with the movies that we are talking about. I don't rate them, and I don't know if that's hurting us or not on Letterboxd. Probably, because people like to read the reviews, but I just want people to get the reviews here, (laughs) rather than, Mm -hmm. you know, reading a blurb on... And, you know, for films where we have entirely different opinions, it's not really, like, feasible. But you can, you can see what we're talking about and what we're going to talk about as our streaming homework on Letterboxd. So if you look us up on Letterboxd, you should be able to find us. 
Um, we also have a TikTok, which I occasionally update, and we're going to start trying to get some clips on YouTube. So that's all under MacGuffin Pod. Be sure to read my reviews for the Idaho State Journal. Uh, you can do that by Googling Idaho State Journal Movie Reviews or Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment. Uh, and be sure to leave us a one-sentence review and a five-star rating at whatever podcast app you're using to listen to us on, iTunes or Spotify or Google Podcasts, whatever. And you can read the other reviews and articles by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. I, that's that's what it is. Um, <laughs> and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. And uh, also, if you're interested in seeing me perform improv, I perform the show Improv versus Stand Up, which is weekly and occasionally um, uh, another show called Lyrics and Laughs, um, which is kind of a similar format, but instead of, of stand up comedians, we have. Uh, cabaret singers come and we do improv based on the songs they sing. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, you can follow, check them out at uh, mockingbirdimprov.com or .org, .org. Yeah. Okay. And that is the episode. To be honest, when I found out the patriarchy wasn't just about horses, I lost interest. Bye.